Good morning. It's so good to see everyone this morning. Uh, as Billy indicated, my name is Hugh, and I uh, serve on the leadership team here at uh, SDC. Um, <clears throat> we're currently doing a, a teaching, really a mini-series, uh, entitled Holy Armor, um, Standing Firm Against Satan's Schemes. Uh, with Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 being the main passage. Pastor Billy introduced the series last week as he covered verses 10 through 13. We believe that the study in spiritual warfare is very relevant and appropriate for such a time as we're living in today. And the challenges we will inevitably face both now and in the future. We were introduced to such warfare <clears throat> in our study in the book of Daniel, especially the last few chapters in, in the book. And as we prepare for our study in the book of Revelation in the new year, we will see and realize the increase in intensity of spiritual warfare in the days and time leading up to the imminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Billy discuss the purpose of the armor of God, which is found in verses 10, uh, 11, and 13. It's for Christians to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, which enables us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, who is our chief enemy, enemy while we are here on earth, and to resist him in the evil day, it says. The evil day probably refers to the general times in which we live. In the previous chapter, in verses uh, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Walk circumspectly, one translation says, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, or redeeming the time, it says in one translation, because the days are evil. The days really have been evil ever since the fall of man in the garden and have gotten progressively worse since then and will continue to worsen in these last days, unfortunately. Billy also discussed the nature of the struggle, the conflict, <clears throat> and the enemy which we faced. Paul tells us in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are to stand firm against the scheme of the devil, recognizing that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our real enemy is not other people, Although it, although it may seem that way sometimes. Um, rather, our struggle is against spiritual forces that control the present world system. There are demon forces, really, that are under the control of Satan. So the conflict is spiritual in nature. However, we do need to remember that Satan's control is temporary and really allowed by God for a reason. Because we read in Revelation 11:15, uh, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. So this morning we're going to discuss the four pieces of the armor found in verses 14 through 16 next week. Um, uh, I believe Alan will pick up in, in the next, uh, for the next two pieces of the armor. The main point of this morning's message is really the same as last week. In the gospel, God has given us all we need to stand firm in a spiritual war. <clears throat> so let's get into um, the verses we're going to cover this morning, for, uh, 14 through 16. Before I get into that, though, I want to introduce you a little bit, actually, the Apostle Paul introduces us to this allegory that he uses uh, in these verses. Um, 
So <clears throat> I, I think it would be beneficial to understand that Paul is here using the allegory of a Roman soldier dressed in his military garb and ready, prepared for battle against the enemy. He's also making use of Roman military tactics and strategies in warfare. The Roman military, the army, was well known throughout the Roman Empire, and Ephesus was no exception. So he uses something which the Christians at the time um, <clears throat> would be uh, very familiar with, really, just about everyone would be. And so he uses that to illustrate these spiritual truths and to help them and us to understand these truths and to apply them in our lives. One of the main reasons Rome um, or the Roman Empire became so powerful was because of the strength of its army. It conquered a vast empire that stretched from Britain all the way to the Middle East. The army was very advanced for its time. The soldiers were the best trained, they had the best weapons, and they had the best armor. So it made sense for Paul to use the Roman soldier's armor to illustrate these truths about the ability of the Christian to be strong and able to, be, to stand against our enemies, which are many, with armor, though, supplied by God himself who is infinitely more powerful than any army, <laughs> right? So it's not about the Roman army or any, any, any country's military army, really. So with that little bit of background, let's take a look at verses 14 through 16. So we'll go ahead and read that. Stand, for the, stand, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of fruit and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Excuse me. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths that you've preserved for us down through the ages, Lord. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his so deep, such deep concern that he had for the church, that they would be able, they would be able to, to resist and stand firm against the scheme of the enemy. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd use these truths that we're going to look at. Father, they're your truths, they're not ours. Um, but you want to make them ours to, to a large degree. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, Father, and wisdom in terms of applying these truths in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we discuss these verses, I'll be referring to this specific piece of the armor as illustrated by this allegory. Uh, we're going to explain what it means for the Christian and how Paul intends for that truth to be applied to the Christian's life. So we're going to start, of course, with the belt, <laughs> the belt of truth. Um, the belt um, had a crucial role in the effectiveness of the, of the Roman soldier's army, armor. The belt of a Roman soldier in Paul's day was not like the belts we wear today. It was a thick, heavy leather and metal band with a protective piece um, <clears throat> hanging down from the front of it, which protected the lower body. The belt held and secured the soldier's sword and other weapons. It is significant that Paul starts the list of God's army with the belt of truth, because Satan's chief weapon against the Christian is lies. As Pastor Billy mentioned last week, the enemy uses deception to devour our faith. Jesus says this about the devil in John 8:44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. 
And, and Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded then, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. From a spiritual perspective, the belt of truth is a crucial piece of defensive armor guarding our, most, our, in, our inmost being in the battle against the lies and descriptions of the enemy. Without the knowledge and understanding of truth, we are left very vulnerable to being carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.14. The belt of truth, truth protects us and prepares us for battle that is part of every Christian's life. So think about this. <clears throat> and I think you'll see this as we go, you know, go through the, the, the three verses this morning. <clears throat> Every other piece of the armor actually hangs or rests on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. The gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit are all anchored into God's truth. If the truth gets distorted, it's no longer the truth. And everything else gets distorted. And that is where all the various false teachings come from, at least one of the, <laughs> one of the places where it does come from. Constant, uh, consequently, Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6.14, fasten our belt or buckle the belt of fruit around our waist. Sometimes trans some translations say gird up your waist or gird your loins with truth. But regardless of the wording, we are to actively lay hold of the truth. The truth which Paul is talking about is God's word. The scriptures which he has preserved through the ages and provided to us. And it's not just some truth. Truth, you know, it's, we even think of, well, you know, scientific truth, for instance, or facts about various things that we believe, we believe and are true, and they're important, but that's not what he's necessarily referring to here. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we, we communicate to our guests in our foundations class is, is that probably one of the most important things to establish in a Christian's mind and heart is the highest theme which the scriptures need to have in his or her life. And why is that? Because the scriptures is God's word, and it's the primary means that God uses to communi communicate to us, his children, concerning himself. His love for us, his grace, his will and purpose for our lives, his vision for a lost world. And it's the primary it's also the primary means that he uses to train us and grow us up in maturity in him. The enemy will try to do everything in his power to get us off track and away from truth. Even just a little bit away. <laughs> Obviously, <clears throat> Paul is not speaking of carrying a Bible around with us everywhere we go. All that, uh, Although that's Probably not such a bad idea. <laughs> what he's wanting to convey to us is the importance of knowing, understanding, and believing truth as revealed in the scriptures and it having a transformative effect in our lives. It is what Paul is referring to in the first two verses of Romans 12 where he urges believers not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we could prove what the will of God is as we walk through life in the various situations, circumstances we find ourselves in as we go through life. So, how do we gird our ways with truth and thereby stand firm against the schemes of the devil? Well, good question, right? Uh, I think you already have hints of that. 
But think about Jesus' prayer for these disciples during the last few hours while he was with them before going to the cross. He said this, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just like as, as I am not of the world. I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just, I am, just as I am not of the world. But how is he going to keep them from the evil one? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's John 17, 14 through 17. In other words, let them be immersed in your word. And by the Spirit, use the word to transform them into Christ-likeness. We immerse ourselves in the word by reading and studying it, sitting under sound teaching, asking the Lord to help us to handle his word accurately, and seeking to apply it in our lives. Paul tells Timothy, and us of course, he says, be diligent, or to study, to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. In the scriptures, believers have a word of prophecy that is certain. It's sure. Something that we could place great confidence in and place our lives upon. And because of that, Peter says that we would do well to pay close attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. <clears throat> in the song, and we sang it this morning, How Firm a Foundation, right? It's, we find these words in the first verse. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in what? His excellent word. What more can he say than to you he is said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? <clears throat> well, let's talk about the breastplate of righteousness. <clears throat> and I mentioned earlier, every piece of the armor is tied in some fashion to the belt of truth. And the breastplate of righteousness is one of them. Um, <clears throat> The breastplate, kind of going back now to the allegory of the Roman soldier, the, the breastplate had a very key role in the Roman soldier's armor. It protected the part of the body which contained key organs, such as the heart, the lungs, and other important organs. And it was usually fitted with loops or buckles which attached to the belt. Interesting, right? A loose belt would allow the breastplate to slip off. One of the key schemes of the devil is accusation and condemnation, which is false guilt, really, to get us off, to get us down and devour our faith, as Pastor Billy said last week. The breastplate of righteousness is designed by God to protect our vital spiritual organ, organs, the heart, and the soul from falling prey to accusation and condemnation. So the question is, what is the breastplate of righteousness which God has provided to the Christian to enable him to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? Some theologians and Bible scholars have argued that perhaps it refers to our own righteousness as we seek to walk in obedience to God's word or integrity of character, or even moral, morally correct behavior thinking. It is true that we should seek to be and to do, do these things, but we so easily and regularly fail at them, often opening up the door to the devil to bring accusation <laughs> and condemnation and guilt. It must be that God has provided something infinitely superior to one's own righteousness, which enables us to stand. Well, that is indeed the case. Charles Hodge uh, puts it this way <clears throat> um, 
in his commentary on the epistle to Ephesians. He says this, many says it is our own righteousness, integrity, or rectitude of mind. But this is no protection. It cannot resist the accusations of conscience, the whispers of despondency, the power of temptation, much less the severity of the law, or the assaults of Satan. What Paul desired for himself was not to have his own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. And this, doubtless, is the righteousness which he urges believers to put on as a breastplate. It is infinitely perfect righteousness, consisting in the uh, obedience and sufferings of the Son of God, which satisfies all the demands of the divine law <clears throat> and justice, and which is a sure defense against assaults, whether from within or from without. John Stott says this in the message of Ephesians, uh, the Bible speaks today, he says, certainly no spiritual protection is greater than a righteous relationship with God. To have been justified by his grace through simple faith in Christ crucified, to be clothed with a righteousness which is not one's own, but Christ, to stand before God not condemned but accepted, this is an essential defense against an accusing conscience and against the slanderous attacks of the evil one. So in Romans 12, we find these very comforting words by Paul. He says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. <clears throat> That's verse 1. Later on in the chapter, starting in verse 33, he says this. He says, so who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. <clears throat> so how do we take up the breastplate of righteousness then? The breastplate of righteousness is received and put on through placing faith in Jesus Christ. At salvation, Christ's righteousness is given to us. It's actually, the word is imputed <clears throat> to us as we place faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is called justification in theological terms. Once saved, uh, then we are, we are also called then to live by faith. <clears throat> so in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, right, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, though, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's made alive by faith, but he's called to live by faith, to live the Christian life by faith. So we are saved by God's grace through faith and not on the basis of any works we have done or any merit on our part. In believing, in living the Christian life, the same is true. As we live the Christian life, we understand that our hope of salvation and our acceptability to God is not based on our performance or works or obedience to the law or a set of rules. We're acceptable to God strictly on the basis of our union with Christ through faith. Now, everything doesn't mean we don't do good works. <laughs> everything that we do should simply flow out of this relationship, this union that we have with Christ. So good works are going to flow out of that. Obedience is going to flow out of that. So when the enemy comes with his accusations and condemnation, remember that we are dressed in Christ's righteousness. And, and we just hold fast to that. The first verse of the song before the throne of God above says this, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinless soul is counted free. For God 
the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. <clears throat> so the next, the next piece of the armor which Paul addresses is having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. <clears throat> so in verses 14 and 15 we read, stand for, we'll just read that, we read it earlier but we'll read it again. Having fastened on the belt of fruit and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So again, back to our allegory. <laughs> the shoes which the Roman soldier wore were instrumental in his or her, I don't know if they had women in the military back then, but their ability to fight effectively and be victorious over the enemy. The shoes were very important in his ability to have his feet firmly planted so he could hold his ground when attacked by the enemy. So what they did, the outer sole of his shoes was studded with nails or spikes, kind of like cleats, right, to help him stand firm and to keep his balance in combat. Without them, he could easily fall over and be defeated by the enemy or be trampled by his own soldiers, actually, and fall over. Paul uses this, the type of shoes which Roman soldiers wore in comeback to illustrate one of the pieces of armor which God provides to the Christian in preparation for spiritual comeback, combat, which will enable him or her to stand firm against the enemy when, he's, when attacked. The shoes with which we should shod our feet is the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul is essentially saying that the Christian, being well grounded and established in gospel, being sure-fitted, so to speak, is critical to being able to withstand the various ways or schemes which the enemy uses in his relentless attacks against us. <clears throat> A common attack by the enemy really is to distort the gospel, leading ultimately to, to false doctrines. Um, so such preparations speaks, of course, salvation, right? We're saved. <laughs> uh, so, but it's not just speaking of the salvation experience, which is a powerful work of the gospel in our lives, but of us growing in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel and it having a transformative effect in every area for our lives. As I was preparing the, the message, I was reminded, reminded of a quote by Tim Keller, which Pastor Billy used uh, a few weeks back <clears throat> when we were doing the series that uh, the gospel is a forced importance. So I thought, let's, let's use that again this morning. So Tim says, um, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. Rather, the, rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum requirement, uh, required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. So what are some of the transformative effects of the gospel in our everyday life? <clears throat> As we read and study the epistles, certainly of Paul and, and the others as well, like Peter and John, we find a distinct pattern in the way the letters were organized and laid out. And there's a reason for it. The writers certainly wanted us to have a solid knowledge and understanding of the gospel, that's for sure. What God has done for us in Christ and what he has made us in Christ in saving us. But they go on to lay out for us what the practical outworking of these truths in our lives should be. The transformative effects of these truths in our lives in every arena, every sphere of life we find ourselves in in light of what God has done for us and what he has made us in Christ. We don't have time to get into all this, but you see in Ephesians, I mean, you know, it talks 
all kinds of relationships, you know, employer, employee, you know, family relationships, all kinds. So take the book of Ephesians as an example. <clears throat> the book of Ephesians may be divided in, really into three main, main sections, each part focusing on a different aspect of Christian life. The first part is doctrinal, and I think we all know, know, these, know this. And in this section, Paul lays out spiritual truths concerning the believer's position in Christ, what God has made us in Christ by his grace, and doctrinal statements of the Christian faith. So he chose us, he predestined us, he redeemed us, he sealed us for the day of redemption, he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. By his grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. <clears throat> These all have to do with who we are in Christ and the teachings, really, of the Christian faith. Paul then moves from doctrine, though, to, pra to the practical aspects of the Christian life. In the next, um, starting in verse, in, in chapter 4, the middle of chapter 4, and here he challenges the believers to walk or to conduct himself as he lives in this fallen world in a manner that is consistent with his high calling, with his heavenly citizenship. So again, so many verses we could quote, but one of them is Ephesians 4.1, I, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as, un as wise. And then the, the third part of the letter Paul discusses, that's where we are today, right? He discusses, it's another really aspect of the practical Christian walk. I don't know if you've ever actually viewed it that way, but that's what it is. Spiritual warfare is just a part of the practical part of the Christian life and the Christian walk. The fruit of the Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, in our lives is the result of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with God's Word, in this case the truths of the Gospel, to produce godly character which results in godly conduct. With these transformations, uh, the ability of the enemy to gain a foothold in our lives is greatly diminished, thereby increasing our ability to stand firm and against his schemes. As an example, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity or a foothold. Speaking of sinful anger, um, do you realize, really, that walking in, you know, it tells us to put off falsehood and other things, do you realize that walking in falsehood or having unforgiveness and resentment, and I could, you know, in our hearts, uh, and I could name a ton of other things, actually provides an opportunity for the devil to establish a foothold in our lives. And it diminishes our ability to stand firm against his schemes. Being well-grounded and established in the gospel prepares the Christian for sharing <clears throat> the gospel with others as well, whether wherever he or she is. So, for instance, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ, as Lord and as holy, always being prepared then to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Secondly, well, being well grounded in the gospel results in a joyful readiness and preparedness really to carry the gospel of peace to a lost world. Literally, the gospel of peace means the good news or glad tidings of reconciliation between God and man, and ultimately between man and man. <laughs> the good news is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, a new and living way into the presence of God has been inaugurated through the veil, and it is available to all who would accept 
who would accept it by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And guess whose responsibility that is? Well, the responsibility of taking the good news to the lost in the power and direction of the Holy Spirit has been entrusted to us, to Christians. We have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. Again, we won't read that this morning. But Isaiah the prophet, <clears throat> hundreds of years earlier, um, looking forward in time, saw the day when men and women would be anointed by God and sent forth to take the good news to those who need to hear it. And he wrote these words in Isaiah 52, 7. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Through the proclamation of the gospel, territory that Christ has already won through his victory over Satan is possessed by this church. I don't know if you ever thought about evangelism that way. <clears throat> and this is one of the key areas of conflict in the spiritual realm. Consequently, the enemy will do everything in his power to keep people from hearing the gospel keep people from even going, <laughs> right? I say going, I don't mean you have to go to Africa or anywhere, really. I mean, right here in our city and in our neighborhoods. So he causes apathy, indifference, lack of interest among those who are entrusted with this responsibility to take the gospel to the last. But he's active on the other end as well. He blinds the eyes of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel. But that shouldn't prevent us, right, from taking it because the power is not in us. It's in the gospel itself. It's the power of God unto salvation. If we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, we must have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So that brings us to the last piece of the armor. Take up the shield of faith. So it says in all circumstances, in addition to all or above all, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul is not saying that faith is the most important of all the armor. But that is an, it's, it is an important and indispensable part of the armor. <clears throat> so let's refer again to our allegory, <laughs> right, of the Rome, you know. And so <clears throat> the Roman shield, um, which Paul uses to illustrate the spiritual meaning and importance of faith in spiritual warfare and uh, how it enables us to stand firm against, against the scheme of the enemy. The shield was vitally important to the Roman soldier back in that day. And it was meant to be taken up, really, in, in all circumstances. You don't go to war without your shield. Um, it was the first barrier against the enemy's attack. One type of shield, and there were different types of shields that were used back then, One type of Roman shield is called the scutum. scutum. <laughs> it was an impressive line of defense for the soldier. It was quite large, actually. I don't think I could carry that thing myself, but it was slightly curved, rectangular in shape, and featured a, a large metal knob called, it was called a boss at its center. It measured like three and a half feet tall, or thereabouts, and about three feet wide. So it provided a great deal of protection for the soldier. It was made of wood and covered with leather. And when wet, it could extinguish flaming arrows and 
other fiery project, uh, projectiles hurled at them by the enemy, which was a common tactic, tactic uh, <laughs> used back then because it was slightly curved. It would deflect attacks or sometimes our incoming projectiles and not transfer the full force of the blow to the person holding the shield. It's kind of interesting. Um, one of the, but this I found this even more intriguing. One of the battle formations that made excellent use of the of this shield was called the testuda, which was used to ward off heavy attacks by the enemy. Using um, and a lot of times it was used if you're if they're going up against like a fortified place or or there's just being a hundred heavy attack. Using bows and catapults, the enemy would shoot flaming arrows. They would throw fireballs and metal darts covered with pitch and set on fire. With the goal of overwhelming those who they are attacking and causing chaos and confusion. To defend against that kind of attack, the soldiers would go into a rectangular formation. And those on the, the perimeter would align and interlock their shields to form an enclosure around them all. The soldiers on the inside would raise and interlock their shields over their heads to form a protective roof over the whole formation. Paul's reference to the shield of faith extinguishing the flaming missiles and fiery darts of the evil one may very well have had this kind of tactics in, in mind that's used um, by the Roman army. So with that little bit of background and picture in our minds, spiritual speaking, what are the flaming missiles and fiery darts which the enemy hurls at the Christian? with the goal of overwhelming, <laughs> overwhelming him and causing chaos and confusion to devour his faith, so to speak, as Pastor Billy says. One thing is for sure, the list of these flaming missiles and fiery darts is large, but they also come in various forms. <clears throat> Here is something we need to realize, though. Satan knows what we're vulnerable to. And that is where he often aims his darts. So here are some general categories. You may find yourself in or is able to identify with one or maybe several of these. How about unbiblical thoughts about God? You know, what if God doesn't really exist? Perhaps God doesn't love me. Maybe God is not good. Would a good and loving God allow all this pain and suffering in the world? And you've probably encountered people who raised those kind of objections. How about these critical and hateful thoughts about yourself and others which could easily lead to breaking a fellowship with God and others including your own family, friends, church members, co-workers? How about thoughts of lust, wrath, revenge, malice, or despair? Despair, rather. One author I came across <clears throat> says these, these things are capable of burning themselves deeply into our souls and all of them weakening our ability to resist whatever strategy he, Satan, plans next. And how about fears, anxieties, panic, panic attacks, accusations and condemnations, we talked about that earlier, even sicknesses. Think about Job in that situation. How about doubting the inspiration and authority of the scriptures? 
or the deity and an atoning sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice of cross on our behalf, or even our salvation by grace through faith alone. Do you know there are all kinds of doctrines that have been formed <laughs> from that? And the list really goes on. Well, all of these things can seem so overwhelming, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of the attack. But God has provided the perfect shield which can quench and extinguish all of these fire darts of the enemy. And of course, what is that shield? The shield is faith. So what is faith? <laughs> the psalmist David says this in, in Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I'm helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 18.30 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So, what is faith? Here's a definition. Faith is believing in the one true God, taking him at his word, including his promises, and placing the full weight of our lives on him and his word and promises to us. Faith is something that is birthed in our hearts by God. It is not something which originates with us. And it is sustained by God, not us. So why can we and should we place the full weight of our lives and, on God and his word and promise? It's because of who God is and his promise to us. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> in, in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer tells us, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of self, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which is it, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. For this hope, God actually, oath rather, God actually swore by himself, since he could swear by no one greater. Do you think that such a God cannot, rely, cannot be relied upon to keep his word and his promise? course not. So this is the faith by which we are called to live. My righteous one shall live by faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us in 1038. We are able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one by placing our full trust and confidence in God and nothing else. <clears throat> Here are I thought if I had a couple of minutes, I'll just say this, and, and it's it's um, so I titled it. It's not in your notes. It says, "What faith is not." <laughs> so here's what faith is not. It's not positive confession. Positive confession is the practice of saying aloud what you want to happen, with the expectation of that God will make it reality. It's a, a, a popular among prosperity gospel teachers who claim that words have spiritual power and that if we speak aloud the right words with the right faith, we could gain riches and wealth. We could even bind Satan. I don't know how long he stays bound for, but <clears throat> when we do that, um, and accomplish anything we want. To confess positively, to speak words that we believe 
or want to believe, thus making them reality. But that is not faith. It is er erroneous. We cannot quench the fire darts of the enemy by positive confession. The heroes of the faith depicted in Hebrews 11 didn't do that. You know, as we studied through the book of Daniel, we saw Daniel, we saw the faith of Daniel, we saw um, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the three Hebrew children. Did, did they employ positive confession? <laughs> no. They trusted God, right, didn't they? So, <clears throat> We're getting ready to close, and I think we have some time, so Alan, if you would come. <clears throat> and while he's coming, Alan and Michelle. <laughs> so you may be here today, and you don't have a clue <laughs> regarding the spiritual warfare that I spoke of and standing firm against the schemes of the devil. Hopefully you all do, I mean, but there may be someone or more than one that don't. <clears throat> That may be an indication that you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way. The Bible depicts those who don't know Christ as basically going with the flow of the world, which is ruled by the prince of darkness. That is why <clears throat> there is no desire to rest and stand firm against his schemes. If that is you, we would certainly invite you to come up after the service and speak to one of our leaders about Christ. Christ is the one who invites all to come to him to find true rest and contentment for their souls and hope for the future. But for those who know Christ savingly, but it seems like you're being overwhelmed by the flaming darts which the enemy is hurling at you. You are invited to come up for prayer as well, right? Pray with our prayer team, I think today, Marcus and Michelle, all right? As well as our leaders are here. Or you could grab a neighbor and ask that person to pray with you. One of the things that uh, in looking at the shield of faith and that formation that I mentioned, it's, uh, you know, Spiritual warfare is not a solo adventure, you know, and we kind of saw that example depicted there. It's a body thing, you know, I wish we had more you know, time to spend on this and, you know, uh, there are other passages that speak to that. But anyway, Alan.